0: Turn to Psalm 94, please. I'd like to read this psalm as a prayer this morning, uh, which is what it is. So pray with me as we begin here. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous. And the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. And the cares of my heart are many. Your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Amen. The um, social justice movement has been around for a long time. If you, uh, if you follow religious news, and I'm not saying that you need to, but if you do follow religious news, you might know that these things are being debated in conservative Christian circles right now. So, so Christians are, are not wholesale in lockstep with supporting, for example, all of our current president's policies. And so uh, the biggest example in the news right now, or over the last couple of weeks, is regards to separating children and parents at the illegal border crossings. And my guess is that you have an opinion on that issue. Um, you have an opinion on many other issues similar to it. But I can tell you that many, many Christians even may not share your thoughts on those issues. They may have different opinions. These types of issues, whether it is immigration or what to do about the opiate crisis, uh, even in our county, whether it is poverty issues or racial tensions, these issues tend to divide people, even Christians. In fact, these issues, or others like them, give rise to, and really have given over the years, rise to what has come to be called the social gospel, which says that Christian faith is practiced as a call not just to to personal conversion, but to societal reform, to reforming society. And so adherence to the social gospel, they take verses like Micah 6, 8, we read this earlier, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? They've they've taken verses like those to heart. And they've come to the conclusion that as Christians, we must be involved with seeking social justice. And I will tell you that those of you who are involved in the pregnancy center ministry, for example, um, you're involved in this kind of ministry. Seeking to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before our God. What happens when the idea of social justice, of social reform, of fixing genuinely wrong things, what happens when that idea of this kind of social reform becomes the definition of the gospel? That's where the trouble begins. And what happens is we lose the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We lose the message that Paul says is of first importance in First Corinthians 15 when he said that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, so we have to keep that gospel message central. We have to keep central... That Christ, the message that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We have to keep that proclamation, that message. It must be our primary focus as Christians. But to quote former contemporary Christian recording artist Steve Camp, hell is burning while the church sleeps. It's all too often the overreaction Against not doing anything that might be perceived as being too social-gospely is for us not to do anything. To come and sit under sound doctrine, to sit under sound teaching in our churches and never go and make disciples of all nations, never go and love the least of these, never leave to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly before our God. But as you can see from Psalm 94, that we just prayed, that we just read, there's something that we need to be doing. And it, and it begins with prayer. And before we go any further, I want to stress here. So don't hear me wrong. Many, many of us in here are involved, many of us at Logansville Church are involved actively in many different ways that, that we could say are directly tied to these things. Do justice. That we could say are directly tied to loving kindness tied to walking humbly before our God. Some of you are involved in law enforcement, firefighting, public schools, local politics. And we need more Christians involved in all of those areas. We need more Christians involved in in all areas of of these uh, activities. Additionally, we have here at Logansville Church, we have an abnormally high percentage of families that are involved with adoption or foster care. It's abnormally large for the amount of people here. And, and, and we need, we need, need, need to be praying for those families. Over 10% of this church, over 10% is directly involved in the Pregnancy Center, New Path Pregnancy Center, in one way or another. And That's not to mention sort of the, the I guess you could say, informal ministry that so many of us are involved with, with just simply loving our neighbors. right. In many ways, this, this psalm, Psalm 94, is a, is a prayer that many of us in here are probably already praying, whether we really realize it or not. Or, or maybe this will give us words to pray, because we ought to be praying these things. As we, as we work, as we serve, as we love, as we do justice, love, kindness, and walk humbly before our God. And so of this psalm, the old commentator Matthew Henry, he wrote this. He said, in singing this psalm, we must look abroad at the pride of oppressors with a holy indignation and the tears of the oppressed with a holy compassion. But at the same time, we must look upwards to the righteous judge with an entire satisfaction and look forward to the end of all things with a pleasing hope. And so this prayer helps us to to, to kind of properly orient our hearts as to what we should do when, for example, when evildoers come to power, or how should we react when the powerful oppress the weak. Use your imaginations for just a moment. Uh, Picture the scene in Acts chapter 16, verses 19 to 25. So picture this. Just use your imaginations and picture this. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged him into the, into the marketplace, into the city square before the rulers. And when they had brought in them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received his order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Can you picture that scene? Dragged into the marketplace, the city square, beaten, given a mock trial, dragged off to jail, put in the inner dark cell in the middle of the prison. No windows. Chained up, put in stocks, and at midnight, because you can't sleep, because you're in pain, because it's wet and cold and dark, you're praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners... Are listening. The Psalms are the hymnal of God's people. The Psalms, the Psalms of lament specifically are the people of God praising him in the dark. And when Paul and Silas are, are beaten and, and thrown into jail because, because you know why? Because they set a little girl free from her enslavement to an evil spirit. When they're beaten and thrown in jail for that, they sang hymns and they prayed. And it's it's so it's not outside of the realm of possibility that this is one of the Psalms that they sang or prayed. It's no coincidence that the Psalms themselves are in the order that they're in. I don't know if you realize that. It's no coincidence. And so just look at Psalm 93 just the Psalm right before this, just five verses. The Lord reigns, He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Psalm 93 sings of God's absolute sovereignty, of the oceans singing praises to God. And then we move directly to an appeal to God as the great judge of all the earth. Look. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. Now, for many of the Psalms, we've talked about a couple over the last couple of weeks that we know who wrote a Psalm of David and Asaph and Moses. But for many of them, we don't know who wrote them or even at what point in history they were written. And that's true here. But this psalmist, when we look at this, even though we don't have any idea who he is or what his circumstances are, he he doesn't cry out to God. He doesn't appeal to God's sovereignty in a kind of detached kind of way. And so when he's praying this, if you notice this, and we'll see this as we work through it, it's not like he's watching the news and he's praying for those poor people over there somewhere. It's like he's right there. He's seeing these things happen. He's watching an evildoer crush God's people, and there's nothing he can do to stop it. It's like he's shackled next to Paul in the inner prison, and he's being beaten, and all he can do, all he can do is cry out to God in the darkness. All he can do is pray and sing psalms. But he's confident This psalmist, this songwriter here is is confident of God's existence. He's not doubting God. He's not questioning God's goodness. He has assurance that God sees what men do. And he even even utters a a rebuke toward the evildoers. He, He sees victory in God, even while acknowledging that God really does discipline those whom he loves. It's just not a that's not just an abstract theological concept like a loving father God actually does discipline those whom he loves. I think I've I think I've quoted Charles Spurgeon each time each psalm that we've preached through in these sermons so I'm not stopping now. Spurgeon said of this psalm he said this psalm is another pitiable form of the old enigma wherefore do the wicked prosper? Wherefore do the wicked prosper? It is another instance of a good man, perplexed by the prosperity of the ungodly, cheering his heart by remembering that there is, after all, a king in heaven by whom all things are overruled for good. Wherefore do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? Did you catch what he was really saying here? It means that this prayer is trusting Romans 8.28 in reality. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Psalm 94 is trusting that that is true. And while this psalm is a a deep, heartfelt prayer, this morning I want us to notice four different aspects of this prayer. I'm going to give you all four now, and then we'll go through them. And as usual, the first one is the longest. I don't know why I do that. It just usually is. He prays for justice. He prays for justice. Then he issues a warning for the fools. He utters a a warning for the fools. And then he reminds that God will not forsake. And he trusts that God is our refuge. Again, he prays for justice. He issues a warning for the fools. He reminds that God will not forsake. And he trusts that God is our refuge. So, this prayer for justice. Look again at verses 1 through 7. He says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord. They afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Now, we could even break this prayer for justice down a a bunch of different ways. But the first thing that I want to point out this morning is the one to whom he prays. The one to whom we pray. O oh Lord, God of vengeance, O oh God of vengeance, shine forth. Do you ever pray like that? Do you ever pray for the God of vengeance to shine forth? Do you ever explicitly pray against evildoers? Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Just listen to this. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, 'You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But that teaching, what Jesus says there in the Sermon on the Mount, that does not negate this psalm or so many other psalms that are very similar. We can and we must love our enemies and pray for them. And pray for their conversion, pray for their repentance. Yet at the same time, we can and should also pray that evildoers would be stopped dead in their tracks by our God because their sin is an affront to God, to a holy God. The book of James tells us, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or to quote the King James Version, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There are times when I like the King James. It actually should terrify evildoers to know that they have the prayers of God's people against them. It should. It should terrify evildoers to know that they have the prayers of God's people rising up against them. It should terrify them. Jesus will say in Luke chapter 18, in fact, he will, he will tell a parable, and in the parable, he will say this, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, that is a, a certain judge, and saying, give me justice against my adversary, and then a little bit later, as he's explaining the parable, he concludes by saying this, he said, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? The answer is that that He will hear their cry. He will hear our prayers and He will act. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Four times, just in these first seven verses, um, the psalmist here uses God's name, Lord. Capital, all caps, L-O-R-D. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that in the Old Testament that is God's name that is Yahweh that is God's covenant name his his name for himself Remember in uh, Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So God says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the Lord to whom we pray. The God who is merciful and gracious. The God who is slow to anger and abounding in, in chesed. Covenantal, steadfast love and loving kindness and, and faithfulness. But two times here he calls him the God of Vengeance. God of vengeance, the God who who owns vengeance, the God who owns retribution, the God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Remember, he's praying about evildoers. He's praying about those who are actively working to crush God's people who who have been forgiven of their iniquity and their transgression and sin. Now, in, in modern English, when we use vengeance, when we talk about vengeance, when we think of vengeance, it often, it often brings up thoughts of spite, uh, getting even with someone who's wronged us in some way, sometimes justifiable, sometimes not justifiable, but that's what we think of. Um, but older dictionaries don't view uh, vengeance in this way. They don't define it that way at all. They they see it as a justified, as, as a just recompense, as just payment for wrongdoing. And so the government takes vengeance on murderers by putting them in jail and sometimes to death, right? That's the idea of vengeance here. It's a just payment for wrongdoing. Now, here's how we balance praying our enemies with praying against our enemies. In Romans chapter 12, Verses 14 to 21, Paul instructs the Roman church by saying this, and, and the Roman church was suffering persecution in the hands of, uh, of the Roman Caesars, um, one of which was Nero, who used to light, Christians would be streetlights, would light Christians on fire, and they would light up the streets. Paul says this, he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Psalm 94, this prayer, this is a prayer for God to do his part. And Romans chapter 12 is instruction telling us how to do our part, to overcome evil with good. And so when we pray these kinds of prayers, what do we really ask God to do? What do we ask God to do when we see this injustice? Well, he begins by asking God to to shine forth in verse 1, to rise up in verse 2. He's asking God to glorify himself, to regain for himself the honor that is due only to him. See, the wicked are exulting in themselves. That's what verse 3 says. And they're arrogantly boasting, verse 4 says. And look at what they're boasting in. Look again at verses 5 and 6. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. They're boasting in these things. This prayer is essentially, Lord, all we can see are evildoers boasting in their wickedness. We need to see you. Let your glory fill the earth. Shine forth, rise up, let us see your glory again. All we can see is evil and wickedness. And he prays in verse 2, he says, Repay to the proud what they deserve. Reckon with them. Pay them the wages they deserve for their sin, for they are wicked, they are workers of iniquity. The New Testament describes these evildoers. These people right here describes them like this. In in Romans chapter 1, Verses 29 to 32, Paul says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Inventors of evil, inventors of new ways of sinning. They're disobedient to parents. It's an interesting one to put in this list. They're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the, this is the character of the wicked. This describes the world around us today, doesn't it? This describes the things that we see. Let me give you four specific examples from the news Now, I'm not one who watches the news much, but I read headlines and I've got the internet, so I know what's going on. I want to give you four specific examples that come right out of these verses. They crush your people, O Lord, he prays, in verse uh, 5. These are quotes from different articles. One of the most notorious Islamic terrorist groups in the world, Boko Haram, is responsible for killing thousands of Christians and displacing countless more in northern Nigeria. But Boko Haram isn't the only group targeting Christians there. In a statement released in late June of this year, so just a month ago, less than a month ago, Christian leaders claimed that over 6,000 persons, mostly children, women, and the aged, have been maimed and killed in night raids by armed Fulani herdsmen. They crush your people, O oh Lord. He goes on and the end of verse 5 there and he says, and they afflict your heritage. Later in the article it says, in in their statement, Nigerian Christian leaders also complained about the continuous abduction of underage Christian girls by Muslim youths. These girls are forcefully converted to Islam and taken in for marriage without the consent of their parents. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. But then he goes on and says they killed a widow in the sojourner, verse 6. Another report. In Canada, the third, this is the name of a report, is the third interim report on medical assistance in dying. It's about euthanasia and assisted suicide. It was recently released by Health Canada, indicating that the number of deaths by legal lethal drugs, lethal drugs has increased by 30% in the second half of 2017. Euthanasia, assisted suicide, increased by 30% in the second half of 2017 in Canada. They kill the widow and the sojourner, it says. And then he says, and they murder the fatherless. Another report. Last week, amid widespread democratic tumult regarding the selection of a replacement for Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, comedian Michelle Wolfe paid tribute to the most important facet of American life, abortion. On her Netflix show on Sunday, it was just last week or the week before, Wolf dressed up in red, white, and blue, shrieked into the camera, God bless abortions, God bless America. And she explained, women, if you need an abortion, get one. If you want an abortion, get one. And women, don't forget, you have the power to give life, and men will try to control that, don't let them. They murder the fatherless. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and they murder the fatherless. You know that at any point in time we could pick any article and find stories that fit those verses. But the pinnacle of their boasting, not only is that bad enough, but the pinnacle of their boasting is verse 7. When they say, the Lord doesn't see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Simply put, this is blasphemy. Spurgeon said they are blindly wicked because they dreamed of a blind God. Believing that God doesn't know, that he doesn't see, that he doesn't understand is robbing God of his nature and his attributes. It is mocking God. It is lowering him to the status of these dumb idols made out of wood or stone. And it is this idea, that that blasphemy, this blasphemy, that provokes this strong reaction, which we see next here, this warning of the fool's. So he's looking at all these things around him. He's powerless to do anything. They're mocking God. They're killing. Then he says in verse 8, Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. The the dullest of people, he says there in verse 8, Understand, O dullest of the people. Um, I use the English Standard Version, which is not strong enough. If you picked up on it when we were singing from, uh, the, in the hymn there, um, it uses the word stupid. It actually is brutish and stupid is really what this term means. They're violently stupid people who worship false, stupid idols. And for these fools, he says, their greatest need is not better political advisors, better administrators. They need to understand who God is. That's what he's saying here. They need to understand who God is. For he is creator, verse 9. And not only did he form Adam from the, from the dust of the earth, but he gave us, he gave mankind the, the ability to see and to hear, to understand, to perceive. Would it make sense if, if he himself wasn't able He who planted the ear, does he not hear? The creator of our ears, he hears us. The one who formed our eyes, he sees us. Verse 10, would it make any sense whatsoever if the same God who gave his people the law, if he wouldn't hold them accountable? Is he who teaches all mankind not, not competent to teach? If he, he who gives the law, gives the, his righteous rules, if he gives them to all mankind, is he not competent to tell us how we then should live? Verse 10, he who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. This prayer, these these rhetorical questions, so verses 9, 10, and 11, really, these are rhetorical questions that are simply proving how stupid these evildoers really are. Especially in light of verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. Vanity is really what that is. Remember our study of Ecclesiastes a while back. Dust in the wind. That's what that but a breath is. See, not only does God understand, but he views these wicked evildoers as just dust in the wind. Just just nothing. Just passing. But right now, at this point in his prayer, when he gets here, he seems to turn a page. He begins this new page with an acknowledgement that reminds us that God does see. That God does understand and God will not forsake. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble till a a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and the upright in heart will follow it. These words should be a comfort for us. He speaks them as a comfort for us. See, even in their distress... Even as the psalmist, to kind of put the picture back in Acts chapter 16, even as he sits in jail watching uh, injustice being performed, even as he's helpless to do anything about it, even in his distress, while evildoers work to crush God's people, God sometimes, and maybe oftentimes, uses that to bring us to repentance, to discipline us, to purify us. Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews will tell us that he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We, we all understand that. Discipline is painful, not pleasant. But later, it yields a fruit, a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We understand this. We understand this if we're talking discipline um, in a positive sense, like exercise. We discipline ourselves, with diet and exercise, so there's good results, peaceful fruit of righteousness. Or if it's in the negative sense, where we discipline our children in order to raise them up in a peaceful, with a peaceful fruit of righteousness. To give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked, he says. Verse 13, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Discipline has a purpose. And listen to this very clear promise in verses 14 and 15. For the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. For justice will return to the righteous. And all the upright in heart will follow it. This is the promise of God that is repeated throughout the Scriptures. Over and over and over again. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also." I will never leave you nor forsake you. There will come a time when all the wrongs will be made right. Justice will return to the righteous. There will be a time when the one from whom we have received righteousness will wipe away every tear. This is why we can trust that God is our refuge. God is our refuge. Look at verse 16. He starts with this question, but then he quickly answers himself. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? those who frame injustice by statute. They band together against the life of the righteous. They condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Look at the change in attitude here. We can shake our fist at the news. Maybe even rightly so particularly when we look at the injustice in these first seven verses, but all of a sudden he's changed his attitude. He still sees the evildoer doing evil, but now he's reminded himself of the truth of verse 14, for the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage. He's reminded himself of that truth, and because we know that to be true, that the Lord will not forsake us, because we know that to be true, that God will never forsake his people. Because we know that to be true, we can a- a- ask the question of verse 16 and immediately, we can immediately answer it with verses 17 to 19. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lifted, lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that your soul was about to live in the land of silence? That your foot was about to slip? I would dare say that we all have felt that. The land of silence means death. It means I feel like I'm going to die. you need to know that you're not alone. You know there's a whole bunch of people in this room who have felt the same way at different times. Maybe they don't feel it right now. Maybe they've forgotten it. But they have felt these things. They have felt that they may soon live in the land of silence, that their foot is slipping. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said about all of this? Do you remember that the Apostle Paul actually went through this? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He tells the Corinthian church, he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He says this, listen carefully. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul and those with him were afraid that they were about to live in the land of silence. But then he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. (laughs) Picture that. We despaired of life itself. I thought I was going to die, but that was to teach me to rely on the God who can actually raise me from the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Prayers just like this. Just like Psalm 94. Beloved, there, there is, there, apart from knowing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's nothing more important for us to know than to know that we are praying prayers just like this for one another. There's nothing more important that we should know apart from knowing Christ that we know that we're praying prayers like this for one another. Which means, as Paul says, we don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that we experience. I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that I experience. What would you do if I said this to you? What Paul said to the Corinthian church? What if I told you that I was so discouraged? that I despaired of life itself. What would you do? If we can't have that. I guess we better find a different place. So We better find a different pastor. The Apostle Paul said he was so discouraged that he despaired of life itself. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of Silence. I thought my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O oh Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Too many too many pastors, and I'm just talking about pastors because I am one. Too many pastors shipwreck their life and their ministry. And even their faith, because they get to verse 16. Really, it's not even just pastors, right? Too many Christians shipwreck their life, their ministry, their families, their faith, because they get to verse 16 and they stop. They don't answer the question. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? I guess there's nobody. They just stop there. We need to remind one another of the truth of verses 17, 18, and 19. On the truth that on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We need to tell one another the story of how God was your help, the story of how how his steadfast love held you up, of how he cheered your soul. Look at verses 20 and 21. The evildoers are still doing their evil things. His attitude has changed. He believes that God is cheering his soul. He is holding holding him up. He, he, He has not gone down to the land of silence. God has been his help, but the evildoers are still doing their evil things. He's chained up in the inner prison, so to speak, unable to do anything to stop them. They've noticed they've even banded together. And they've condemned the innocent to death. Verse 20, can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker here. Verse 21, that's not you. That's Jesus. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. Saved from the wicked. Saved from evildoers. Saved from crushing and affliction. Saved from the land of silence. Saved from slipping feet. Saved even from the wrath of God. Saved from verse 23. He will bring back on them their iniquity. Wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. He will save us from being wiped out. How? Because Christ has become our stronghold. Because Christ, Jesus Christ, is my God and the rock of my refuge. The Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. That's how. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. That promise. Several times. Old and New Testament. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So here we are. Reading of the Psalms of Lament. Crying out to God. Praising Him in the darkness. Those... uh, dark night of the soul, as the saying goes. The old poem. The Lord has become my stronghold and the God of my refuge. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. And when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O oh Lord, held me up. And when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Prayer with me. Lord, as we cry out to you, as we see injustice around us, as we see it on the news every single day and 24-7, whenever we want, we can look and see injustice around us. For some of us, we have felt it directly. For others, it is a little bit more detached. But, Lord, it is there. It is in our families. It is in our homes. It is in our community. It's in our schools. And in many ways, we are powerless to do anything about it. We walk humbly before our God. We love kindness. We do justice. And the injustice just seems to keep coming over us in waves. And so, Lord, these words, this consolation, from your word is what we cling to, that you have been our help, that our, otherwise our soul would soon have lived in the land of silence, that when we think my foot slips, your steadfast love, O oh Lord, holds us up. When the cares of our heart are many, your consolations cheer our soul, because through Jesus Christ, the Lord has become our stronghold, our God, the rock of our refuge. Save us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.